Hello, and welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark worked for 26 years at the CIA before retiring in July 2019 at the senior intelligence service level. He was one of the CIA's most highly decorated operations officers who served in multiple field and headquarters assignments for the U.S. government. Mark specialized in counterterrorism, the Middle East and South Asia, including extensive time in Iraq and Afghanistan. He frequently comments on international events in the U.S. media to include the Washington Post, the New York Times, Fox News, GQ, Yahoo, CNN, and MSNBC. Mark also writes a weekly column on intelligence as a Washington Examiner contributor. Mark's book, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, was published by HarperCollins in June 2021. Mark, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Mark, tell me a little bit about Clarity in Crisis. Sure. So, you know, I decided after I retired, at, you know, from CI after 26 years to write a book on leadership. And one of the things that I found, and it was really at, at the end of my career, is that I realized I had become not only a good leader, but I was able to really be comfortable in, in periods where we call or, or times where, you know, there was a lack of situational awareness, periods of the gray, we call. Um, you know, I would, I would be able to embrace, uh, uh, you know, less than ideal conditions without any fear. And I was I was able to lead in those uh, in those scenarios. So I, I dissected it and I wrote a book on it um, because I really thought it was something that that you know I could I could pass forward to the American public, to readers, to people you know in all different professions. As you look at what you put together, Mark, what are some of the leadership lessons that you have learned? Well, boy, you know, so so I think you know there's there's you know my book had, it talks about nine core principles. But it's it's kind of more than that as well, and so let me just start with you know the the, the I think the key attribute of for me what was a very good intelligence officer, but but even more so for for a very good leader is humility, um, and it's a, it's a word that you don't really think a lot of you know in my old world of intelligence special operations in, in your you know in, in your world of, of very similar um, types of activities and protective protective operations protective intelligence and so but humility is such an important character trait because ultimately I think that great leaders really own mistakes and learn. But poor ones, poor ones really scapegoat and, and deflect. And ultimately, I said this to everybody who's ever worked for me, is you really just can't believe your own hype. What do you think is the most important leadership lesson, Mark? So one of the things that, that I found over the years that served me well, and I saw that that certainly served others well, um, who ended up you know, becoming great leaders, is, is how you deal with adversity, how you deal with failing. It's not failure, it's failing. And so one of my principles I talk about is adversity is the performance enhancing drug to success. I mean, it sounds catchy, but, but ultimately it's, it, it's the idea that you really have to taste, you know, rock bottom first um, to succeed. And, and that's going to be your super fuel. That's how you're going to grow 
is from uh, you know overcoming adversity and embracing it and overcoming it. And so you know you're going to fail at first. That's okay. This happens. Um, but only through failure is really how you're going to find eventual success. You know when times are tough. I, I have a million examples from my world again. Um, but let's even go to you know let's go jump to a sports analogy. I mean Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. So you know I think I think it's safe to say he did okay in the end. Um, and, and I think back to my time, uh, you know, at, at CIA where, you know, I ran some operations over the years that didn't do that didn't do well. I think back to a time um, when I was up in northern Iraq living with the Kurds before, the, you know, the invasion in, in, in March of 03. So I was up there in, in, in late 2002 living in the mountains of, of, uh, of northern Iraq. And we ran an operation in which an agent of ours, you know, an Iraqi um, was killed because I pushed this individual too hard. This was on me. Um, and, and I, I learned some terrible, but, you know, important lessons that day. Then I fast forward, um, to when I was a, a CIA base chief in Eastern Afghanistan, 2011 to 2012, we were running an operation to try to, you know, uh, find fix and, and ultimately help take off the battlefield, a, a senior Taliban member, um, who was responsible for the deaths of two CIA officers, but was still plotting attacks on the U S troops. And, and I ran this operation completely differently. I, I, I had total patience. Um, we, we, you know, we kind of put all the pieces together. I had the, you know, intestinal fortitude not to worry about pressure from, from, you know, my higher up, my headquarters to do things, you know, it, perhaps in a more timely fashion. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we took this individual off the battlefield with the help of the U.S. military. And I remember two things. I remember calling the widow uh, of, of uh, one of our slain officers. She was back in, in Fort Bragg uh, in North Carolina and, and, and talking about how we avenged the death of her husband. And then I sat around with my team and we kind of reflected on that. And, 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 I, and I did think back to, you know, at that time, you know, almost, you know, eight years earlier where I had made mistakes, I had, I had, I had experienced adversity. And then later on how I, you know, how I found success. So adversity is, is, you know, is something that I think uh, it's, it, as a leadership principle, it's really interesting. But I, if you look at really elite high performing units, they will have faced, you know, they have, they will have failed in the past. They will have grown and learned from it. And I think that's something really important to, uh, to understand. Yeah, no doubt uh, that failure is a powerful lesson learned for all of us um, as we look back on our careers. Mark, I was watching a fascinating interview you did with NPR on um, these directed energy attacks, and you know some have referred to it as the Havana syndrome. And I certainly don't want to dredge up anything that. Um, is uh, certainly negative towards you in any capacity, but uh, I would love to know what you think is going on with these directed energy attacks towards our intelligence personnel and our diplomats overseas. Sure, Fred. And, and, uh, thanks for that question. I don't mind a answering at all because you know it, it, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I certainly I've written a book on leadership. I'm you know I'm, I, I speak in the media a lot about you know current events. Certainly now on. On Afghanistan, but I, I never thought that I would be actually most known for, you know, certainly, you know, getting hurt um, in the line of duty and, and, and you know, and, and kind of the health journey that I've that I went on. But, you know, it is what it is. And that's something that I have to embrace. And I think that as I talk about this, this, you know, I think the theme that you'll, people will see from me is how I really advocate for the health care of others. But ultimately, on a trip in December of 2017 to Moscow, when I was the acting chief of clandestine operations for what we call Europe and Eurasia. So I was responsible for um, pretty large swath of territory from Dublin, you know, all the way to the, the farthest time zones of, of Russia. But I went to the to, to our embassy in Moscow to do two things. One is to see our ambassador, um, uh, uh, John Huntsman, you know, one of one of our great statesmen, fantastic ambassador. Um, and so I wanted to have discussions with him. But also it was to have 
uh, interesting, you know, discussions with my, my Russian counterparts. And, and if you remember, even in the worst days of the Cold War, the CIA still talked to the then KGB. And so we do have, you know, open open liaison channels with our Russian counterparts. They don't really do much, but that was one of my things that I, I was going to do. And so when, on one of the first nights of the trip, and, and remember, I was in the senior intelligence service. I'd been known to the Russians for, for decades um, as an adversary. And so I, but I woke up in the middle of the night with this incredible case of vertigo. Um, you know, the room was spinning. I had a terrible headache. I had tinnitus ringing in my ears. And, you know, like I'd spent years in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and some other kind of crazy places I can't talk about. Certainly had been shot at a lot, risked my life. But this was the most, ex- the most terrifying experience of my life. Um, I knew something really bad had happened. And then I, when I, by the time I got back 10 days later to the States, I started this rather awful health journey where I saw, you know, tons of doctors. I saw the CIA's doctors who dismissed me at first. Um, and ultimately, I, I had to go public with this after I retired uh, with, a, with a, an article in GQ with the journalist Julia Yaffe, who is you know, a prominent Russia expert. But ultimately, I was begging uh, for the agency to get to, to allow me to, or to provide me health care at Walter Reed's um, Traumatic Brain Injury Center. And it ultimately worked. There was a lot of pressure put on the agency to do that. But um, it was it was a you know, pretty miserable experience all around uh, in, uh, in, in uh, the agency's an organization that I love. I ended up having quite a public public battle with them um, to, to finally get the health care that I, that I thought I needed and really deserved. Mark, what do you think the Russians are doing and why? So this, this one is actually, you know, a lot of people ask this question. For me, it's not a really great analytic leap. So first of all, we know the Russians have such, you know, directed energy technology in the past. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But, but number two, it's a, it's a rather, you know, brilliant weapon because it incapacitates. So, you know, it took me off the battlefield. It's taken many of my colleagues, um, as well as, you know, State Department uh, and, and U.S. military personnel as well. It's not attributable, you know, that you can't see what's happening. You certainly feel it. Um, it's not killing you, but it's, it's, then, it's then, you know, pushing you back, back to the sidelines. And then you need medical care, which is very expensive. And it's a, it's a terror weapon. It's, it, right now, it's sown incredible, um, you know, uh, uncertainty within the U.S., uh, you know, overseas community, whether diplomatic um, or, or intelligence community. and so. Uh, because there's this uncertainty, because it's this kind of, you know, uh, unseen, silent or, or you know, uh, a secret weapon. And, and and so ultimately, I think they're, you know, it's an act of war against our our, our people. We have gone, we've come past the, the notion of did this happen or not? I mean, you see reports just recently in Hanoi. Um, obviously, there was a, almost a mass casualty event at the U.S. Embassy in Vienna. Um, uh, uh, and, and you know, uh, many other, there's, there's just a report about uh, an event in, in, at the embassy in Berlin and then many others. And so, no longer is there a question of, you know, you know, is this psychosomatic or people, you know, making it up? It's something's happening. We got to get to the bottom of it. I think it's the Russians. A lot of other people do. Um, CIA director Bill Burns has put together a task force, uh, you know, made up of some of the individuals who led the targeting teams to find Osama bin Laden. So he's taking it seriously. So ultimately, I think we're going to get there. You think the other nation state intelligence services are piling on like the Chinese and the Cubans? So that's a great question. And, you know, and some of the theories in which I don't discount at all is that, you know, there might be more than one adversary doing this. You know, I think there's a case to be made that in Cuba, that was the, that was a test. Um, uh, now, were the Russians in Cuba or was it just the Cuban services? Obviously, they're, they're, you know, they have a very close relationship. Um, and then what's happening now across the globe, perhaps it's a different state actor. Perhaps it is the Russians. We also have, uh, you know, events which occurred in China as well at, at one of our consulates where a lot of people are injured. Um, and so, you know, it could be more than one adversary that would make some sense. And I think ultimately, you know, uh, uh, these investigations are, are going to, to to find out what occurred. But I, you know, I, I wouldn't discount any theory right now. I, the, the only thing that really kind of gets my blood boiling is when people say, we're, you know, we were making it up, that we're psychosomatic. That, 
there is really no basis for that anymore, given the amount of people this is happening to, um, uh, you know, given given that, that so many of us, you know, are going to a place like Walter Reed getting diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury based on, you know, kind of a full analysis of, of, of looking at us, whether it's imaging, whether it's testing, um, something's happening uh, and we just got to keep on keep on uh, uh, going after it because, you know, again, in my view, it's an act of war. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Ontic's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Mark, uh, having spent a fair number of years in the protection space, what do you think are some countermeasures that uh, could be used against this? Well, sure. And, and, you know, what a great question. And, I, and I'll tell you one thing, it's worth raising, of course, that an incident, uh, you know, reportedly occurred at the U.S. Embassy in Hanoi just before the vice president's trip last week. And and I can assure you, and I'm sure, you know, Fred, you know this as well, that the Secret Service took this very seriously. Apparently, the, the trip was, the arrival was delayed for a bit, too. But this is the nightmare scenario for someone in, in you know, uh, running for protective detail because it's so hard um, uh, uh, to defend against. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, um, whether it's, uh, you know, at, at diplomatic security or, or at secret service or, you know, with the agencies, their own protective details. Um, uh, this is, this is first and foremost, you know, at, at the forefront of, of, of people's minds. I also think the attack in Hanoi was a signal sent that the, that the vice president and others are not, uh, are not immune, but okay, what can be done? Well, you know, I have to be careful on this, but, but if, you know, uh, talking about it in the open source world, it's pretty easy to find you know, companies um, uh, or or um, DOD asking for contracts to develop such countermeasures. And my understanding is that, you know, these things are certainly in the works. So, so you know, uh, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. And I would certainly hope um, that uh, that every protective uh, uh, detail, as well as U.S. officials, um, will at some point be given some kind of small countermeasure to detect uh, if they're on the X. Because after all, what, what this, what a directed energy weapon, you know, the key part of injuring someone is how long you were exposed to it. Um, you know, in my case, you know, the doctors at Walter Reed thought I was exposed a significant amount of time. Um, others, if they know about this, they do, as you know, this, I'm going to, you know, speaking to a, a friendly creditor, you got to get off the X. So friends of mine or colleagues of mine who have been hit overseas have actually said to me when it was happening, they knew immediately to move. Um, just like it would be if, if it was a terrorist attack, you know, getting off the X was key. So uh, I think those, those, you know, uh, those countermeasures that will be built will be absolutely essential because. Um, just like if, if someone's shooting at you, you know, in this case, they're shooting some kind of directed energy weapon at you. You got to move. Yeah, it's frightening to think about, uh, Mark, when you start looking at this, and not only the the personal ramifications for someone like yourself, but for family members and and so forth. It's just uh, frightening to have to think about dealing with that. Uh, now, what advice, Mark, in light of what's happened to you and your colleagues, and you obviously are very attuned to these directed energy attacks, what advice would you give 
to those corporate security directors or executive protection directors of your Fortune 1000s that are traveling around the globe. They're going to Moscow, maybe uh, Hong Kong, Beijing, and um, they're meeting with uh, diplomats at the American embassy or they're meeting with host government officials. What advice would you give them? So, I mean, I think, you know, just in line with, you know, what, what likely would occur, um, which would be some kind of kind of, you know, liaison contact, um, uh, you know, with 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 the embassy. So with uh, the RSO there, or the ARSO there at some point, uh, you know, they, they should have some kind of contact. I think this issue should be raised. Um, and I think it's very fair uh, to be raised as well, um, because it, when you kind of look at the, you know, you know the, the suite of things that you have to uh, you, know, you have to worry about, um, you know, location of meetings. Uh, 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 you know, infill and exfil routes. I mean, again, when you know, you think about it, almost the same as is in the, the counterterrorism world is, is getting off the X, getting your principal off the X. So, um, but but I would say that that really, it's it's you know, I, it, there's got to be a lash up between the private sector and the public sector on this because you know, there's no doubt that these are the things that that you know, U.S. embassies are thinking about. Um, certainly, CIA stations are thinking about, uh, uh, and so you know, having that lash up is is going to be absolutely critical because. Most importantly, you know, kind of the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest research into this, the biggest effort is done by, you know, within the U.S. government. So, you know, you can make a very strong argument that that findings like, you know, what, you know, what comes out of this should be shared, um, you know, with others in that kind of you know, protective space. Um, but first and foremost is, is having that lash up with the, you know, with, with diplomatic security in terms of any kind of visit um, to another country. And I, I would hope that's occurring um, and that the RSOs and the RSOs are really attuned to this. Yeah, and I know OSAC does a very good job, and uh, certainly the regional security officers uh, around the globe uh, spend a great deal of time talking to corporate security officials as they travel and and so forth. And Mark, are you aware of any incidents that have occurred with directed energy inside the continental United States? Well, you know, sure, I've seen those reports. And in fact, I've actually talked to some of those who actually, you know, uh, uh, believe they've been hit, and I believe them, and, and I believe them because I, I you know, I, I see how they're, you know, what their symptoms are like. Um, I also believe them because I know the jobs that that they had, and so I, I you know, I, I think there is incredible concern within the U.S. government. I know from my contact with the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate uh, Select Committee on Intelligence that we call HIPSI and SISI. These are the intelligence oversight committees. Um, but but uh, you know there is a you know there is a, a you know certainly significant significant concern that this has now moved to our shores, and I think that's fair. Um, and again, you know, I'm not an expert in terms of um, uh, uh, you know having you know uh, uh, you know significant medical training, but when I'm sitting down next to a colleague who's explaining to me their symptoms, and it sounds a hell of a lot like mine, um, I know what they worked on, I know what they were working on. Um, you know, there is a commonality in all of this uh, that does have Russia, um, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a critical component. You know, many of the U.S. officials um, did have Russia as part of their portfolio. So I believe them when it comes to, you know, you know attacks against the uh, U.S. officials here. And I, and I can tell you that, that you know, our, uh, uh, you know our, the, the senators and the congressmen who are looking at this certainly do as well. Mark, and looking back over your career in the agency, what was the most fun that you've ever had? Oh, what a what a great question! Well, I probably a lot of things, as you know, Fred. I can't talk about, um, but but I think that you know, it, it, my my job most of the time, you know, my career track was it was involved in counterterrorism, 
And so when I say fun, you know, this, that, that's a, <laughs> it's a relative term or it's a, it's, it's interesting how you define it, but there were some times in, you know, uh, in my life, in my career, um, in which, you know, I know that the things that we did to protect Americans were successful. Um, operations we ran, whether, you know, with ourselves, with our colleagues in the State Department or, you know, in the military, primarily the Joint Special Operations Command, that, that Americans, you know, uh, you know, were saved. And that's, that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, in terms of fun itself, you know, there's, you know, one of the amazing things about living, you know, and, and, and working overseas is that, you know, of course, you do get to experience different cultures. Um, so, you know, things like, you know, sleeping out under the stars in, in Wadi Rum in Jordan, that's, you know, where Lawrence of Arabia had his camp um, uh, or, you know, or, or, or hiking, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, up in, in where in, in Petra in Jordan, you know, with these incredible um, Nabataean ruins that you saw kind of celebrated uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in many movies. I mean, there's so many instances where, you know, I sat back and I, I really marveled at, you know, even the location, uh, where I was, but, but again, fun for me is a little different. Again, it's, you know, you know, I, I was, I was involved in the infill into Iraq with Naval Special Warfare. Again, some incredible counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan. Um, my definition of fun's a little, it, actually, my definition of fun is probably a lot similar to what yeah, your definition and your listeners are as well. Mark, I get asked all the time for my favorite authors, whether it be nonfiction or fiction. And as someone who has written a very good book in Clarity and Crisis, what authors do you like? Oh, what a what a fantastic question! Because I love, first of all, you know, reading is one of my hobbies. I think that as a as a you know as a member of the U.S. government who's, who spends a lot of time on airplanes, and I know you could probably um, you reflect on this. You know, <laughs> there's a you know, reading is is uh, is is kind of a required hobby. Um, but when it comes to my favorite authors, I think that you know my favorite book written on kind of our um, uh, genre, and it's it's a fiction book, but not really is, is David Ignatius's book Agents of Innocence. Um, I think that book, you know, really you know gave us kind of the essence of what it was like to be a, a CIA case officer. I, I've talked to David about this uh, in person, and I you know I think he was he was flattered when I told him that you know amongst the Near East Division cadre, this is the you know the the Middle Eastern operational cadre at CIA that that book is is almost kind of you know treated as 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 the Bible. Um, but I go back to a, to you know a, a, some other books that really had kind of this, this seminal effect on me, and and one of them was a, a, a book by a, by a, by by James Michener called Caravan, and Caravan was the story of a young Foreign Service officer, State Department officer, you know, in the post war period in Afghanistan, and it was a land and, and the way it was described, and Michener kind of you know you know had this you know ability to really describe the richness of, of different cultures and places. But it was, you know, it was very exotic to me. And I read that when I was young and, and I'll never forget that book because I remember, you know, when I was in Afghanistan on one of the early teams in, in early 2002, I remember, in, in, you know, I was, we, you know, I, I, I was out of Kandahar. We took, we were dropped by helicopter into Helmand. We were chasing some target. And I was sitting across an Afghan village elder and, you know, cross-legged. I was with this captain from U.S. Special Forces, you know, next to me. And, and I was just, I, I really th thought back to that book. I couldn't believe that, you know, a book that I read when I was young um, uh, about Afghanistan, this exotic land, you know, that I was now kind of living this. Um, so I, I think I, I, you know, I enjoy books like that, 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 that take a look at kind of the, the richness and diversity of, of, uh, of different cultures. So that book was very, you know, was, was certainly very meaningful to me. Mark, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? So, so one of the things, that, and and you know that that one of the reasons why I, after I retired, I decided to come out and kind of talk about the intelligence business. You know, I, I went to two friends of mine, George Tennant and, and Mike Morell, two former 
uh, directors of central intelligence. And I and, and, and one of the key pieces was I really didn't believe that, you know, the CIA story was was getting told. You know, there's so many misconceptions about CIA, certainly not a bunch. And you know, this, not a bunch of Jason Bournes. Um, we look like, you know, anyone who's going into, you know, Giant or Safeway or Publix or whatever supermarket you have. Um, but I wanted to kind of talk about CIA as, a, as an indispensable institution because I really think um, it, it is. And so, you know, I, I wrote the book um, with the leadership principles, but in all the leadership principles, there are there a lot of operational stories. And, and immersed in those, um, I think that people can get a sense of what CIA was, you know, was all about. And, and you know, one of the principles I talk about is family values. And I know it sounds kind of basic and, and simple, but it's the idea that if you want, you know, men and women to follow you into battle, um, they got to believe in you and each other. And the stories I tell on this, you know, have to do, with, you know, uh, uh, and, and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll share one of them with you. Is, you know, my, my mom, when I was in Afghanistan, my mom passed away. She lived in New Jersey and I had to get back. And I was on the I was on the Pac-Afghan border as about as the, at the, the tip of the spear as you can be. And I had to fly, take multiple helo flights, kind of go base hopping to finally get back to, to, to Kabul to fly back home. And as we're flying out of my base, um, which was directly on the border, you know, the weather was terrible. We were socked in. I'm on comms with the with the pilots, and these are our pilots are veterans of the special operations community who then come over to the to the IC to the intelligence community, and and I'm just telling them to turn around, um, but they wouldn't do it. And then finally, you know, after about 40 minutes of just hovering in this mountain pass, and I'm starting to kind of wonder if this is worth it, we get to the the next base where I eventually get to go home. And but I asked them, I said, you know, you know, why'd you guys do this? Like, you know, that was really dangerous there. Like, it was okay. And they said. They said, hey, chief, you know, I was the base chief, said, hey, chief, you know, your mom died and, and we were getting you home. There was no doubt. And, and I like telling that story because it, it gives you the sense of the camaraderie that we had at CIA. And that, that's not to say it's not the same as State Department or, or in the U.S. military. But I think that you know, a lot of people don't understand you know, uh, uh, that about CIA. So I, I love telling that story because that's just the idea of, you know, the kind of people that I that I work with. We fought like cats and dogs, you know, uh, just like siblings do. But ultimately, it's an organization made up of really remarkable folks, and I wanted to tell those stories. Very well said, Mark. And uh, I want to thank you for everything that you have done in your career and for your service to our great nation. And we really, really appreciate you being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks, Fred. Great to be here. Thank you very much. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.